you had a busy week in the Leffin market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at 9fin, and I'll be your host for today. When we'll be doing a covenant close-up on portability, please raise responsibly on shipping and our deep discussion on Amigo loans. But first, we wrap up the week. In high yield, Heimstaden issued 400 million euros worth of sons and the bond carries a coupon of 4.375% and a yield of 4.5%. Exacta is also in the market with 300 million euros of senior FRNs and price talk is set at Eurobor plus 535. European Energy, the renewable energy business, priced its 300 million euro senior FRNs at 3.75% as well. In leveraged loans, there are currently two deals in the market. We've got Roompot, the holiday parks business, which is raising a 1.05 billion euro sustainability linked loan. And Domus Vi, the nursing home operators, has launched a 350 million euro add-on. Next up, we've got the Covenant close-up with Caitlin Carey. Here we are with senior legal analyst Caitlin. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Kat. So today we're going to be talking about portability, which is a concept that started off in the high yield world and maybe making its way over to the leveraged loans world. Um, so Caitlin, could you kick us off? Uh, what is portability and, and how can it affect investors? Yeah, exactly. So portability is one of those um, sort of perennial aggressive terms that, that we see um, quite frequently, particularly when the markets are hot. Um, so portability is an exception to the change of control put rights that investors typically would have. So in a high yield bond, um, if a change of control occurs, um, then usually the issuer would be required to um, make an offer to repurchase the bonds from investors at 101. So par plus a little premium, 101. But if portability applies, it means that um, the issuer does not have to make that offer. They can just uh, port the bonds into the new structure and the um, new owner can just keep the current capital structure in place. Um, so, so that's obviously you know not good for investors because investors want to have the ability to um, to get out if they don't like the new ownership and the direction they think the new ownership will take. If they think that you know it's a new sponsor that's going to immediately extract a lot of value, um, then they they might not be comfortable continuing to invest. Portability usually um, is leverage based. Um, in European high-yield bonds. So typically, um, what we see is an exception to the change of control. If a leverage ratio is met on a pro forma basis, um, and so it matters a lot where that leverage ratio is set. Um, in more recent deals, this is set very close to opening leverage, and in some cases above opening leverage, which gives the, the company a, a lot of flexibility to, to port the structure um, as long as its leverage hasn't you know, increased significantly. Mm, interesting. So in a situation where the issuer does port the bonds, there's not very much that investor can do, right? 
Um, no, essentially, I think the main thing that you'd want to do is um, negotiate up front um, not to have portability. Um, and barring that, just be aware of, you know, where portability is present um, and how that might affect um, where the bonds trade um, if there is an event uh, where the ownership of the, the issuer uh, changes. So factor that into to the risks of the investment decision. Great. And have there been any interesting deals involving portability recently? It's it's something that we do see in a fair number of deals, um, and it comes up somewhat frequently. We wondered when the news came out about the um, acquisition of, of Wintelis by United Group, whether Wintelis was going to um, use its portability. And even though we think that the, uh, the test for portability could have been very easily met, um, United Group has said that they're going to repay those bonds. So, so that's an I- interesting situation where they actually have decided not to exercise portability. Do you think it was out of the goodness of their heart? <laughs> no, I think that they've probably um, seen some, um, you know, synergies to be realized by having a single credit group, or, or there probably are commercial considerations at play there rather than wanting to be kind to investors. But it has meant that the Wintelis bonds have traded up to the call price. Investors seem pretty happy that, that, that they'll get redeemed. So now it's time for Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. Uh, We're here with our ESG analyst, Jack David. So today we're going to be talking about shipping because you're doing a series of profiles on various different sectors. Um, And yeah, you've been focusing on shipping recently. So how's it doing uh, on the climate change front? Yeah, exactly. So um, shipping has taken quite a lot of heat lately. Uh, I think it's seen as a laggard compared to some other industries on on climate change. It's also not receiving the same pressure regulation-wise as some some other industries. I mean, it's quite a a big industry in terms of emissions, 3.6% of global emissions. Uh, It's also growing quite quickly as an emitter. Um, It's traditionally just been very slow to implement regulation and then Companies have been quite slow to respond to regulation. For example, uh, it's been quite late to invest in technology. Um, the sulfur regulation one's a good example. Um, regulations came in last year. The industry could have invested early in, in technologies like nanotechnology, but um, instead chose to uh, turn to this technology of scrubbing, which has been around since the 19th century. So by the sounds of it, shipping is lagging other industries and um can you go a little bit more into aviation? Because obviously that's the other area of transport that's been coming under fire a lot too. Yeah, in many ways, yes. Um, if you compare it to other industries, I think it's got off quite lightly under the, uh, for example, the new proposed EU climate laws is behind aviation uh, in terms of its targets. Aviation set a net zero target for 2050, which is uh, more aligned to the Paris Agreement. I think, I think historically the, the complex nature of the shipping industry uh, might be what's put it on this this path of being slightly behind other industries. Um, for example, the value chain is quite complex and it's quite hard to apportion emissions to individual nations, which today is held out of the EU emission trading system, uh, whereas aviation has been within the, the emission trading system since, since 2012. Uh, so there's been less pressure on shipping to curb its emissions compared to aviation, for example. 
Yeah, I was reading in your piece about how there's loads of different things they can do. I mean, they can even just go back to like wind power and like sales and stuff, can't they? If they if they if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, from a, from a technological perspective, it's there's a lot that you can do um, within shipping, and yeah, weirdly enough, wind power is is something that uh, there's investment going into. Um, in compared to aviation, that there's it would be easier to to invest in these zero emission technologies. The design tolerance is a lower, for example, than in aviation. So it's much easier to retrofit ships than it would be aircraft with zero emission um, and energy efficiency technologies. Interesting stuff. So what about the companies within leverage finance? Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, there are a lot of laggards in the fin space, um, as often the case with private and mid-cap companies. Um, they don't have the same same uh, regu- regulatory requirements to disclose um, or public scrutiny a lot of the time. Um, if we use Maersk uh, as a benchmark, it's not a high high yield issuer, but uh, it's really the only company in the industry that's that's, that's doing well. <laughs> yeah, that's aligned to the Paris Agreement. That's that's doing that's ahead of the curve really, um, and it's investing heavily in electric and zero emission technology um, as opposed to. Uh, LNG gas, for example, that pretty much every other shipping company is is investing in, which is quite controversial um, technology for a number of reasons. Next up, it's our deep discussion. With us, we have our esteemed CEO, Stephen Hunter. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Kat. How are you? Great, thanks. And we also have our fabulous editor, Chris Haffenden. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kat. Today we're going to be looking at Amigo Loans, which has been in the headlines and in courts recently. Uh, So yeah, Chris, what's the situation here? Uh, Amigo Loans is a guarantor lender. Uh, The difficulty has been that Amigo has been subject to a whole bunch of claims where effectively with the FCA and the financial ombudsman, we've actually had a number of these claims come through where effectively they've been uh, linked to potential mis-selling. And the, the whole bunch of claims management companies have jumped in on the back of that. And it's got to the point where it's threatening, potentially threatening Amigo's survival. Yeah, so the, the way it typically works is, you know, you need a, a small loan. It's reasonably high interest rate, I think nearly 50%. You apply to Amigo. And the thing that was unique about Amigo was that you would have a guarantor. So typically a family member or a close friend who would, um, you know, step in to, to cover the loan in the event that you couldn't pay. And for Amigo, that meant that, People were more likely to repay, but given that it's such a high interest rate, um, it, it, it proved tricky for some people to um, to repay. And also it's quite a high high interest rate credit product, so it obviously gets a lot of attention um, from the likes of the financial regulators and you're more expensive than a credit card, etc. And so people, you know, are, it gets a lot of regulatory scrutiny. Uh, and then, of course, you had these, like you said, these claims management companies who um, thought that they might have a case that some people were being given these loans who couldn't really afford them and shouldn't really have had them. Um, and ultimately that's led to them having some regulatory difficulties and, and some difficulties both in their stock price and in, in, in the price of their bonds. Yeah, what happened was that the turn of the last year, Amigo decided that they wanted to find a solution. So the idea was they wanted to put all these uh, claims into an SPV with a small pot of cash, about just 50 million quid. And the idea was that uh, all claims would be paid out of that and with about 15% of the future profits. 
Um, the Migo um, does have bonds and a securitization. The bonds effectively are senior secured, so they effectively rank ahead of any of these claims that have been put together by these creditors. But the scheme was opposed by the Financial Conduct Authority at the last minute, um, and they objected at the sanction hearing to the fact that the payout ratio was very, very low and that the holders hadn't been consulted. Um, one of the other things that they were very concerned about was the fact that there wasn't really a, a burning platform. Amigo, because it hadn't been lending during COVID, effectively had lots of cash on its balance sheet from loans as they were getting repaid. And there was no real threat to its immediate survival. So they effectively said it's not about binary option. If the scheme doesn't go through, it doesn't mean that the company's going to file for administration. It just means that you know you have to come up with an alternative plan and the final aspect of that was the fact that also the shareholders weren't taking a hit and in theory the uh, these claims should have actually ranked ahead of the shareholders and probably did entitle were probably entitled to some of the equity it's quite an interesting situation isn't it because you've got um you know a reasonably innovative business originally when it was started in terms of using the guarantor concept then it you know with a, a charismatic um, founder, let's say, who's now no, no longer involved, really. But they listed the business, they had a securitization, they had bonds, and then they had these kind of these, um, these creditor claims as well. So you've got a lot of different parts of the, the capital stack. But I guess if you if you zoom it right out and go back to kind of credit basics 101, probably the first question I would be thinking for this type of business is, does it have a reason to exist? Um, you know, the I guess Amigo would say the alternative before us was you'd have to go to, you know, a payday lender or potentially something even more nefarious in order to to borrow money if you if you couldn't access credit through traditional means. Um, but we know that the FCA are very focused on these very high interest rate type products, and there's a lot of history in this sector with companies having a bit of a crackdown from the regulator, depending on 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 their behaviour, or perhaps. Amigo might suggest on the mood of the regulator at that particular time and moment. Yeah, and there's been changes to the regulator as well, and there's question marks about whether the the new uh, management at the FCA are trying to, uh, to put their stamp on on this. The other interesting thing is the fact that Amigo is very clean to put out a new lending model. They want to go away from the guarantor model. They want to do something called Amigo 2.0, and the idea would be that that would actually be a brand new way of lending, moving away from the guarantor model they're using their sort of expertise in terms of their claims assessment and the sort of credit worthiness of the customers and but the difficulty of that is it actually has to be approved by the fca and it's very difficult to put a new scheme together which is what they're trying to do without actually having any real visibility on how that's going to go and what the profitability of that would look like so i think that's probably the conundrum that the companies in at the moment and they, their, their view would be that the FCA isn't really helping them because it's not really telling them much in terms of what they would like to see in terms of the Amigo 2.0 but also about you know how the new sort of scheme to address these claims is actually going to look like as well. So um, the final interesting bit on this as well is the FCA was saying well you need to have some consultation with these users. So the idea is that they've actually come up with a independent panel where there's eight members on that panel which are either former uh, guarantors or former uh, clients of Amigo. And the idea is they're going to give them a menu of options or ideas about how they would actually like to, um, to pay them out in the future. And then based on their feedback, then they will actually come up with a, with a new, new scheme. Unfortunately, the financial ombudsman has actually 
decline to actually be part of that. So again, that's another problem because you don't actually know what the regulators would think. You're kind of at the whim of the regulator for this type of business, really, given that you're you're so heavily regulated on the type of product that it is. Um, and, you know, there, this is not the first business in this type of high high interest credit type space that has had issues. You know, you've had Wonga historically um, within the Levfin community. You've had businesses like Bright House, which had, you know, very high credit provisions that got into a lot of difficulties. So, I mean, I guess my, my question is, is the FCA does it actually want businesses to be providing this type of credit in this space? Or is essentially the implicit messaging, we don't actually think these businesses should be lending at these types of rates to these types of consumers, um, and therefore we're not going to play ball and we're not going to be helpful when it comes to what was really quite an innovative way to try and deal with the claims management companies? Because I, I think the the idea of using a scheme to deal with these types of claims hadn't really been contemplated in this format before, so it was quite a novel and innovative approach. But ultimately what they've discovered is that Without the FCA on board, that can make your life really quite difficult. Uh, yeah, and the FCA are going to come up with some regular, uh, some guidance in November, October to talk about how they think these schemes should be uh, addressed. Um, Friends Provident actually went a very different way and effectively jammed the FCA into a corner while saying, well, if you don't actually agree to the scheme, you know, we are going to, we are now going to discontinue this company. So effectively, if you don't agree for the scheme, the claimants will get zero rather than just a small amount that they will get under the scheme. So they would actually be worse off. So they sort of jammed them into a corner on that. Uh, what Amigo have subsequently done in their latest reporting is they've actually massively increased their claims provisions for this. So in the theory, what it does is it actually creates that burning platform by saying, if you don't actually approve a scheme, then we are technically insolvent because now we're recognising on our balance sheet all of the claims that potentially could be made rather than just a proportion that we think is likely to be made. So they're effectively assuming that every single customer will make a claim. It's, it's, the dynamics are interesting as well because, you know, you had the founder historically had lots of, let's say, disputes or disagreements with the application of the FCA's rules, was involved a little bit. There were rumours that he might, you know, make an offer for the company. He was had a substantial shareholding, then sold it down. And, you know, that equity ranks behind, in theory, all these claims. So you've got, a pub, you've got public shareholders to keep happy as well, even though you're talking about... Um, potential insolvency, a lot of whom are now kind of retail shareholders. And then you have the, the dynamics of the securitization, which they've kind of paid down quite a lot of. There's only a limited amount left under, and then you've got the bonds. But the bonds have rallied really pretty well. Um, so presumably investors think that they're they're covered in a kind of runoff event. What, what do you think, Chris? Um, I think they're mostly covered. Um, the, the view is that the bonds are a very long way off, but the company will not be putting that much money into the new scheme because they will need, they feel, to escrow the cash that they currently have to be in favour of the bonds. And there'll be more cash coming in as the loans run off. Most of the loan book is actually under one year. So in theory, um, if they don't make any new loans, um, then most of the money will come in and most of those will be in favour of the bonds. The, the real question mark is really how this actually gets treated by the courts, because the courts could actually say, well, you know, you are going to have an Amigo 2.0 business potentially launched in 2022. That's still another two years before the bonds are due. So why should you be reserving all your current cash you know, for the bondholders, some of that could be made out to, uh, to claimants. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how that sort of gets treated in court. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be trying to push or nudge the FCA into that kind of burning platform scenario where you say, 
it's a binary choice here. Either you can go through your winding up process and we will actually just liquidate the loan book and liquidate the company and let's see how much money you get back for your claimants and your claims management companies. Um, but then you're going to have some very grumpy shareholders, albeit many of them retail. Or you said, look, we can reach some kind of compromise agreement, which maybe you won't sign off on as the FCA, but you won't object quite as strongly to where you get something back for these particular claimants. And then I suppose the hope is for Amigo 2.0, presumably lower um, interest rates, the FCA gives a little bit less attention. Hopefully the brand isn't too badly tainted for them to relaunch a, a kind of new product and use some of the expertise that, that they have. But it seems like this one could play out you know, in the next six to 12 months, right, Chris? Yeah, I think so. I think there's two things there. One is that um, Amigo will also say there's a competitive advantage here because a lot of the other lenders, such as um, Wonga, are now out of business. So in theory, there's... And also they feel there's a much bigger addressable market out there than maybe there was um, five years ago. So I think that's one thing. Um, other thing on the scheme and about whether the FCA will um, object or not, I think the company was hoping the FCA would issue uh, something that's called a no objections left letter. But on the conference call recently with uh, with creditors, uh, Amigo effectively said that the FCA had said that they wouldn't issue a no objections letter. So I think it's still very difficult to tell until you know we get very, very close to the actual launch of the scheme where the FCA will... Um, will go along with this or not so there is a fair amount of uncertainty out there i think for bondholders very interesting we'll keep a very close eye a really interesting situation that we've been tracking at ninefin for quite some time now and sadly that is all we have time for today on cloud ninefin thank you to caitlin to jack to Stephen, to chris and to ben and thank you to you too listener uh, we hope to see you